Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lalo. And this week, uh, I'm really, really excited about the episode. Oh, and by the way, I still have COVID, and so I have this tickle in my throat. So I'm trying like that, trying not to cough. Um, anyway, sorry about that. We have an awesome guest this week whose ears have probably been burning since the beginning of December when I first started talking about our awesome guest this week a lot. <laughs> I was listening to earlier episodes. And I was like, oh my gosh, Becca was mentioned 30 <laughs> times by me, at least in one of our episodes. Anyway, our guest is Becca Syme. Hi, Becca. How are you doing? Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I listen. And so my ears were definitely burning, but in a great way. I love it. <laughs> I was like, I've discovered Becca Syme. Where was she? I think the reason I didn't discover you is because like when I hit my great burnout period in 2019, I stopped listening to podcasts mm. and you've been on shows I usually listen to. And so I'm like, okay, that's, that's on me. <clears throat> that's not on anybody, on anyone, but me. Okay. So hold on. Becca is a Gallup certified strengths coach with a master's degree in transformational leadership and 14 years of experience in success, success coaching with writers, organizations, and individuals in communications, strategy systems, and self-leadership. She teaches the popular Write Better Faster course, which I'm taking this month, and it's been great, and does strengths for writing writers coaching. She lives in Skeeton, Montana, where it's always winter and never Christmas. <laughs> and she sometimes write mystery no writes mystery novels under the a name R.L., is it R.L. Syme? R.L. Syme. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Anyway, welcome to the show again. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your journey when it comes to writing and publishing. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of writers, I think I've always been writing on some level ever since I can remember. And so the, the journey definitely started young and also, um, was not at all what I expected. <laughs> I did a uh, undergrad in English lit and I did a, a part of an MFA, assuming, of course, I think like a lot of people who do MFAs that I would be writing poetry and short stories and novels and making a living doing it because I didn't understand life and uh, stopped doing the MFA when I realized no one makes money doing that, basically. Um, and how to do something else. And I actually got into strengths coaching because I had to take the strengths test to get into grad school. And um, I just fell in love with strengths and started obsessively doing that and then was writing as well uh, because I just love writing. But I feel like the two have been kind of inextricably linked for me. Like I've been doing both of them for decades, it feels like, but yeah. Well, you basically just answered my next question, which was at what point did you start coaching authors? <laughs> well, it's funny because I was, um, I was actually coaching schools and corporations, individuals and stuff like that before. And I never intended to coach authors because I was an author. Like I started, uh, I got my first contract in 2009. My first book came out in 2011. Um, and then I did indie publishing starting in 2013 and I, left my job essentially and became like a full-time writer. Um, the strengths coaching happened because I noticed that a lot of my writing friends had never been business owners before. And so when they were trying to run businesses, they were struggling with some of the HR stuff that I think we struggle with when we're brand new business owners and don't know how to manage ourselves. Right. 
Um, and so I actually started coaching just for fun. Like I was coaching writers because I was friends with writers and they needed help. Um, and then eventually it just kind of became its own monster, like in a great, it's a friendly monster, but it's definitely, it became its own thing without me intending to do it. Yeah, I feel like for a lot of authors, it's kind of a surprise when they find out, oh, I, I'm running a business. Like if you start a lemonade stand, you know what you're getting into. But you're like, yeah. but I was writing a novel. Why do yeah. I have to learn all this business stuff? Yes. Um. So as someone who it sounds like you've worked with a lot of authors, so you've presumably had the opportunity to see a lot of personalities and different types of people. So what are some of the common challenges that authors struggle with? And I'm curious, Um. does that, how much does that change as they go from like finishing their first book, which I feel like everybody's had that struggle and understands, or everybody listening to this anyway, um, and to like mid-career authors or people who have written five or 10 books, what kind of issues are they struggling with? So what's super interesting, and I would probably give a different answer. Um, I would give a different answer having coached authors and maybe other writing coaches would give, because for me, it's so much about the person and like the personality and, and what's different. I would actually say for the most part, I feel like personality is the determiner between whether people struggle in certain points in their writing career or not, because some people don't struggle at all with their first book. And then they start struggling five, 10, 15 books in because now all of a sudden there's pressure, right? And they are not good at handling pressure when they're the person who is the decider of all the things um, versus other people who struggle to learn how to complete their first novel. And then five and 10 and 15 books in, they're just iterating a process that works really well for them. So what's really been fascinating and, and why I think I keep doing what I'm doing is that there is, there is literally no pattern at all to like a particular point in your career and what you, everyone will struggle with capital E everyone. And then a particular point in your career and capital E everyone will struggle there because who you are and the facility you have and the tools you have so determines what your particular struggles will be that, I mean, like, for instance, I coach some authors who are 20, 25, 30 books in, and they still struggle every single time they start a novel, even though they're six and seven figure authors, and they just don't believe they're ever going to be able to write a novel again, even though they made $50,000 on their last book, and all of the data would say otherwise. So it's just fascinating to me, how different the patterns are than what I would expect they would be. That's interesting. Do you think that I always feel like I tell people if you're not if you don't hit it right out of the starting blocks, you know, if you don't your first series doesn't kill it. I'm like, it's probably a blessing because you're gonna, you know, if you have super success right on and then it's like more stressful because you're like, I don't know if I can follow up on that. And, you know, if you just kind of gradually build a fan base, I feel like it's easier. But do you find that to be true? Or can we can have hang ups (laughs) authors anytime? Right? Yeah, I mean, can we have hang ups? Yeah, but I so agree with you, though, because when you get used to not succeeding in the beginning, you develop, like you develop skills to not succeed and still keep going. But man, when the, like, when you do the one hit wonder thing, right. And now you have to follow up and write like the second book. So like, I have a couple of clients who would do like their very first book outsold literally anyone they even know or heard of. 
And then they cannot write the second book at all because the, the pressure of, are they going to fail the second time? Or like, was it a fluke? All that kind of question that they ask. So yeah, like if I could choose a path, I would choose to break out near the middle of my career or the end rather than at the beginning. Cause it is, it's most of us don't cope well with that kind of pressure. Yeah. That makes total sense. And I've, I've seen that happen, you know, a couple of my, well, one of my author friends who co-wrote their, their first trilogy was just, it just exploded and lamentably, which is really sad to say, but they quit their jobs and then they weren't able to produce it again. Like they, they froze, they couldn't write for several months and then their next books didn't do as well, which is what they were afraid of happening. And like, that's, it's, it's stressful. It's really stressful. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm such. I'm such a fan of gamification when it comes to author careers, because it lowers the stakes. So whenever you have like failure is okay, because let's just say like that particular trilogy didn't take off the the next one that they released. It didn't take off, but then the third one might have. So like, if you always believe that everything you do could potentially be a learning curve, then it's, you're allowed to have a failure every once in a while and not have that like, if we fail, the world will end. The stakes are too high. We need lower stakes. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about using our strengths to be more productive. Um, we'll talk m- first like writing and then um, marketing. Um, but my first question here is about your Write Better, Faster course. Um, would you explain why and how you approach the topic of writing better, faster for a di- diverse set of authors? Yeah. So what I found when I was um, first doing coaching for writers is that who you, similar to what I was saying to Lindsay, right? Like who you are is so important when it comes to what is keeping you from being productive. So everyone's reason for not being productive is different. So for instance, if you look, if you pick up a random productivity book off the shelf um, or out of the Kindle store, Um, it's only going to help about 40% of people. So roughly 60% of the audience is not going to be able to put into practice what it is in that, you know, in that particular system. The reason is often, again, personality related or wiring related or life and environment related. So I was like, we need a place where we can address all these different parts of a writer's life that might be holding them up or might be keeping them from having the kind of productivity that they want and not just productivity, but satisfaction. Like so many of the, the um, aha moments that people have when they come out of write better faster is wow. I thought I was doing a lot worse than I am because I was comparing myself to literally the one person on the planet who can do the thing that I want to do instead of recognizing that no, for actually the way that I'm wired, I'm killing it. And so like some of the people who go into the class recognize that, realign themselves. Um, but the class itself is so focused on what makes you unique and different from everyone and why it is that you have to customize. It's really customized productivity systems is, is what the, um, the class does. But um, what makes you unique and why customizing your systems to fit that uniqueness will help you to be better faster. And there's a test, isn't there? Like it's all based on like finding your, is it like kind of your top three strengths and 
can people do that for free somewhere? Or do they, they need to sign up for a course to, to learn what makes them tick? So there's, uh, we actually use, I think, six or seven different, um, because the assessments were looking for specific um, indicators. So like there are certain things where um, how pain averse I am actually makes the difference in what my productivity system effectiveness is going to be. So we have, we use a particular union test for that. So like there are, like we use several, but the one that I'm the most famous for talking about, I think probably is the strengths finder. Um, there are free versions of the strengths test. I don't use any of them because we get, we get certified to use the Clifton version. Um, there are free versions, but I usually encourage people not to do that. Um, there's like, it's a $20 fee. If you go through Gallup, I think to take the test, um, gallup.com, but, and then we, we offer them to writers for 10 for cost. For people who are maybe wondering if that's something they should look into, can you give like a couple of examples of, um, maybe some common <laughs> things that writers, uh, find out about themselves? Yeah. So it's super common for, uh, I'll just use one example on the union. It's a lot of, um, what are the word? Continuums, continuums. That's a good it's word. It's a lot of continuums. <laughs> I would have been looking yeah. for it too. <laughs> so I'm, I'm either pressure prompted or I'm uh, pressure controlling. So like an awful lot of pressure prompted people believe that they should be pressure controlling because that's what a lot of productivity language is geared towards, right? Schedule everything, have a lot of goals. Um, if you find the right day planner system that somehow that's going to magically make you more productive. Um, and a lot of what people find out who are extremely pressure prompted is that it's not that they're not um, planned enough or that there isn't the right goal setting system. It's literally that they don't need goals and plans. Um, and so they shouldn't be using day planners because they're not uh, the, the day planner. Once they close it, if you're extremely pressure prompted, you're literally going to forget that it exists once it's closed. So no planner is ever going to help you be more productive because as soon as you close it, you're going to forget it exists. So you're not, it's like, nothing's going to work. Um, that's one very common one. I think that there's another super common pattern for writers. That's one of the Clifton strengths, um, which is it's called intellection. And it's that need to think over things that whole, like, I'll get back to you or let me think about it. That's a high intellection indicator. So an awful lot of high intellection people really struggle with making words at the beginning of their writing time. So when they sit down, it takes them 20 or 30 minutes to be able to produce anything at all. Uh, and a lot of people who are like that think that they're broken because they're like that. When actually it's just an indicator of the way that their brain is processing, there's literally nothing they can do to change that about themselves. And so rather than going looking for ways to change that, we try to give them tools to speed the process up, like speed up the priming of the pump, I guess, sort of. Um, and then the acceptance that comes with that is, oh, I'm not stupid or broken. And so instead of trying to fix myself, I just need to work with what I have and expect that it's going to take me 20 minutes to get 500 words. And then I can do 2000 an hour after that. So um, like a lot of it is just realignment of expectations. 
Yeah, I would say I'm one of those people that I have to figure it out ahead of time, the scene, before I can start yeah. writing. It always drives me crazy when people are like, just start writing. You have to write, and then it'll come to you. I'm like, no, 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 I got to figure it out, and then I can write, and then it's no problem. But When I love that self-knowledge, because I can hear the confidence, both I would imagine from the years of experience, right, like helps you have confidence, but there just are some people who are so confident in their process. And I think when people don't have that confidence, they assume I must be wrong or broken. And so the, so much about the realignment process is the reminder that when you are that way, like there are people who are extremely successful, who have that same issue. And they just accept it and work with it. So then I can just accept it and work with it. And I think that's why I like um, strengths in particular so much is that we have examples of six and seven figure authors who have literally every single of the 34 strengths. There is no indicator that like there's one particular set that's good for writers and one that isn't. And so I can know with certainty that it's okay for me to just be who I am. And I could still have success even being that way. I'm sure a big part of the journey is just kind of figuring out how you tick and how you can be Mm -hmm. successful. And do you guys also identify weaknesses? And is that something, should you, do you teach to kind of lean into your strengths and try to work around your weaknesses or or like at a VA or something to do them? Or or do people just need to suck it up and do some of the things (laughs) that they feel they're not good at, or maybe they aren't good at? Yeah, I would say both are true. Like, because um, what we find in terms of the, the theory of strengths is that so many of our weaknesses are actually the things that we're really strong at that we're not utilizing in the best way. So like my, just to give an example, I'm very high in a strength called input. And it means I like to take in a lot of information. So when I am procrastinating, when it's not beneficial procrastination, because some procrastination is beneficial, but when it's not beneficial and I'm just wasting time, The problem isn't that I'm low discipline because I am low discipline. The problem is that I'm so high in input that it feels more fun and good to input than it does to do the writing. And so if I can understand that and acknowledge, okay, there are ways to make that input work better for me and to be more intentional about the way that I use it, that will get rid of some of those weaknesses as opposed to like, shaming myself for wanting to go research stuff, which is never going to make the desire for the input go away. In fact, sometimes it makes it worse. And we rebel against our internal desires. Like we rebel against the curbing of the desire. So if we go with the wiring instead of against it, it's often much easier to control those areas of weakness. But I also just want to agree with you about we still have to do plenty of stuff that we don't like. And that's the bad news, right? It's like, there's just no way sometimes around the fact that even when you are bad at things, unless there's a way to just not do it or pay someone else to do it, we still have to do it. Yeah, it's a, that's one of the unfortunate things that like, especially like we're talking about being people who, who run businesses. It's like, you figured out, okay, I can definitely write a book because I wrote a book. And then you start discovering the other parts of being a, a, a successful business person. And now there's all these new skills you weren't aware you were going to need. And uh, you were confident you could be a writer because you did that. You know? <laughs> and suddenly you find other stuff that doesn't matter whether you're confident you can do that or not. It's part of the job. Oh, yeah. 
Um, all right. So you said earlier that like you don't there's no strength that uh, means you're not going to be a successful author. Like there are successful authors with all of these myriad different types of strengths. But uh, I, some just not speaking uh, of the like the the 34 or whatever codified strengths, but like strengths in general, some things uh, are more applicable to an author career than others. Uh, do you find that there are some strengths that like you are succeeding because of that strength versus you are succeeding in spite of that strength? Or are there are there strengths that are just not hugely beneficial to to a writer, but might have been beneficial for other parts of the the career? Yeah, that's a great question because I would say. I would say the answer is yes, but with a caveat of, I do think that the strength is always beneficial to some part of a career. It may not be beneficial to the parts that like are, for instance, if I'm super high in input, that is extremely beneficial for certain parts of my writing process and also for my learning process, but it's also antithetical to some of the, you know, getting things done part. Um, And so are there strengths that make it more difficult? Absolutely. But sometimes, so this is what's so interesting. So intellection is one we talk about a lot and it is um, thinking over and over and over something. So that desire to find certainty before you take action um, is kind of the hallmark of, of high intellection. And when you're high in intellection, it does generally mean that you don't write as fast. Most intellection writers don't release more than four books a year. Like that's a general average. Um, And so if you were following rapid release protocol, that makes it really difficult to do rapid release protocol. But thank God that's not the only way to be successful as an indie author. So it's almost like for every thing that might be a downside, there's a potential workaround where you could make that work for you. So for instance, some of our clients who are very successful high in election writers, they write books that stick in a way that the rapid release books for most people, not everyone, but the rapid release books for most people are not sticking on that same way. And they have certain hallmarks of that in election depth and certainty. And I hesitate to use the word quality because it's not that faster books aren't quality. There are plenty of fast books that are quality, but in general, um, so they have different hallmarks that make them stick differently in the market. So on some level, if I could choose, I would rather write fewer books that make more money than more books that make less money. And that's a personal preference, right? Because I also happen to be high in election, But then thank God that not everybody's wired like me, because then we wouldn't have like other people who write 25 books a year and make millions of dollars doing it. And we love their stuff. So like, I kind of feel like on some level, the, the path of indie authordom is just so diverse and different that it's possible to make every strength work for you. Even when you don't have some of the strengths, like for instance, achiever that one's easy to think of what that might be getting things done. Right. So like it is much easier to get things done if you have achiever, but it's not a given that you're going to be a moneymaker just because you have achiever, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny when, uh, I have had conversations with a friend of mine who had aspirations to be an author, 
but uh, never got past the planning stage because planning was just what he wanted to do. And the yeah. joke was always the, about the way we made maps because I would write a story and then make a map of the story, like literally, literally a map of the story. Like here's where all the cities are. And he was like, I don't understand how you can start writing a story without a map finished first. And then like four years went by and he has a really nice map and no story. And I have an entire series with, you know, that's been building on a map. It's just interesting to see how these things work. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So my next question is um, what are the differences? Okay. And this, I want to make sure that this episode is beneficial for people who haven't taken the test, you know, the strengths, Clifton strengths and all that test. Um, So what are the differences between someone who is externally motivated when it comes to writing and publishing and someone who is internally motivated and how can a writer know which they are again, like not, I mean, I want them to take the test. They, everybody should take right. the test. But, I <laughs> but if you don't, valuable. there still are ways to tell. I mean, because <laughs> any personality test, even the ones that I don't use, because I think they're basically scientifically invalid, but even the ones that I don't use have some kind of a helpfulness to them because they provide a way to discuss certain characteristics and they're essentially behavior, right? So if I'm externally motivated, I'll be able to look back in my history and see that I perform best when there are external circumstances that have teeth attached to them. So when I make a deadline for myself, I don't meet it. And when someone else sets a deadline for me, I meet it. That means that I'm generally speaking, that means that I'm externally motivated. When I'm internally motivated, I can set a deadline for myself and I will meet it. Potentially not all the time because circumstances in life, but generally speaking, internally motivated people don't need deadlines. They don't need help, you know, be getting things done. So when you're internally motivated, being an indie author is definitely easier. It is like to go back to Joseph's questions, right? It is definitely easier when you're internally motivated because you are the person who's in charge of your business. And so as the boss, you listen to the boss. When you're externally motivated, it's more common that you don't always listen to yourself first. And I think the danger is that when internally motivated people look at externally motivated people, they try to make them internally motivated, like just care about your book more, just have better focus, just have bigger goals, you know, et cetera. And that rarely works. But what does work if you're externally motivated is using the motivation around you to help you write, like creating an environment around you that is external to help you write. So things like um, we have one external motivated writer who writes with her Patreon. She literally gets on the computer with her patrons on Discord, shares her screen, and they all watch her write the book, right? Like it, every time it's time for her to write, she shows up for it because she doesn't want to let down the insiders who have like, who are that invested. And then like an external motivation, obviously pre-orders, editorial deadlines, like things like that, that have teeth attached to them. But the problem is if, if the teeth aren't real, your internal external motivated it will know. <laughs> so you can't fool it and be like, no, for reals this time, it's going to be January 1st. No, it knows like the thing inside your head knows that there are no teeth attached and it won't listen. Because of course, the problem is when you're externally motivated, 
you're also being pressured by all the things around you, the system that you have created that is externally motivating you to do other things. So when you are wired that way, and this is part of what we talk about in Write Better Faster, you have to identify the places that are causing the most slowdown for your external motivation as it relates to books, and then do something about those places. Because if you don't, then they're going to continue to give you the same results because you're giving them the same information. See, this is all really great information. And, and I am, I have learned, you know, through strengths and through the course and everything that I am very internally motivated. Um, and when my life fell apart, I was like, oh crap, I need deadlines. Like I need to set up all these deadlines. And so I was like, I need pre-orders. And I, I didn't realize that my life didn't fall apart because I wasn't meeting my deadlines. I wasn't meeting my deadlines because my life was falling apart. And it was really hard for me to recognize that. And so I've heard you say before that, um, and I would like you to explain this a little bit. So when you are internally motivated or externally motivated, either one and life around you is out of your control. Like you have little kids, like I do. Um, how does that affect your strengths? How does that, I mean, how does that change how you need to approach deadlines and things like that? Yeah. I mean, it changes out everything, right? Like I feel like it changes everything. And especially those of us who lived through the last two years and saw the way that our entire productivity system changed when all of a sudden our kids were home from school, some, some of us, or when our spouse or partner or parents or children were home from school, right? Like home from work. So what ends up happening is when variables change so often, we don't want to adapt to the variables. We want things to continue to go the way that they've always gone. And so we don't adapt. Like we intentionally try to keep holding on to this old thing that we had. And I think so often the acceptance that comes when we accept that, yeah, other people's priorities matter to me, then I no longer struggle with the fact that if my kids are at home, I'm not going to write as much. Then I make other arrangements for that, right? Like I either come to different income sources. And this is the other piece that I just wish we would become okay with. There's become such a stigma in the author community about being a full-time author is the only way to be an author. And it, it frustrates me a little bit that that stigma exists because there are so many people who would benefit both from the pressure release of having money come from somewhere else. And also again, for a lot of high intellectual people, you would actually benefit more from more thinking time and less writing time and having a part-time job, or maybe for some of us, a full-time job helps us not only relieve financial pressure, but it also helps us to write better for some of us. We need to fill our time with more things. Some of us are less productive as full-time authors than we were as full-time teachers and part-time authors, because we are so externally motivated that we're just not capable of ordering our own time in that way. And so for me, I think every time something in your external environment changes, it has a potential to affect everything about your productivity. And we keep wanting to pretend like there are no related incidents, like nothing is related. I can just keep doing what I'm doing and I can, you know, shut it all out, but not everyone's capable of doing that. And if you aren't, there's nothing wrong or broken. It just means that you need more stability and we need to find a way to get you some environmental stability. 
It's a pretty tough transition for a lot of people too. If they do make it, decide to go full-time author, all of a sudden they've kind of lost that structure from having a job and the social connections yeah. from, with people. All of a sudden you're <laughs> alone in your room or, yeah. or not because you're also watching your kids, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it's like, I think we glamorize it or a lot of people are like trying to escape a job that they're frustrated with. So it's like, it seems like the pinnacle is to be able to do it full time, but it does come with its own challenges. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think what I would like to see as a coach is to see people, if you don't like the job, then get away from the job. Like instead of trying to escape into author world, because there are ways to know, like you can definitely talk to either writers who are like you and see what their challenges were like, or you could talk to like a coach. There are many, many coaches besides us who coach writers and just ask about common patterns for people who are like you, because if you are wired similarly to, similarly to other people, you're more likely to have the same struggles that they had when they went from part-time to full-time. And so even just listening to different authors who are like you and listening to their journey can be helpful, but yeah, that it is not, it's not easier. <laughs> like, I wish that it was easier to be a full-time author, but it's not always easier. Sometimes it's actually worse. I've definitely heard from a number of people that, like you said, um, they were more productive before they quit because before they had like one hour a day and they made the best of it because that's all they had. And then suddenly they had all this time and they spent six months playing video games before they got serious about the next book. Yes. Yep. So we wanted to ask a couple of questions kind of about marketing too. Like, are there some strengths that authors have found about themselves that can assist them with that task that we all love, which is <laughs> trying to get our books to sell once they're done? So there definitely are some strengths. And interestingly, it may not always be the way that we think it would be. So it's not necessarily that like extroverts have an easier time marketing or anything like that. I do think like there's a particular set of um, behavior patterns that actually make people have fewer and closer relationships that can be really beneficial for marketing. Because if you are the kind of person who doesn't make friends easily and you don't like social media and you tend to not like for your life to be on display, they're actually, I feel like that is a perfect setup to have the newsletter that you run or a Patreon channel be your primary means of communication with your readers, because there are gates, there are natural gates against the, the rabble, I guess, right? Like the random people so that you know that people who have signed up want to be there and they have requested to hear from you. And then you have permission for that from them. So for a lot of people, the alignment of marketing being better is all about what do I, what would I naturally want to happen? Like if I'm a person who naturally does not like social media, then I either need to farm that out or not do it. And I know that sounds harsh, but there's so much noise on social media that if you're not loving it, it's probably not effective. Like what I usually say to people is if you can't tell that it's making a difference, then it's not making a difference and you need to stop doing it. But so many of us have this like, but I have to Becca, but I have to be on Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. And I'm always like, but do you, like, I can point to so many people in the world who are not on any social media at all, who sell just fine. And also who 
use other ways to either grow or nurture their fan base or have someone else do it for them or help them. So like there are definitely many, many ways, but I would, anytime people are like, what should I do with marketing? I always want people to do the assessment of their platform first. Like I want you to order the things that you do and tell me what you think makes the most difference. And that's where I want you to spend the majority of your time because most of the rest of it is the noise that is not helping us in our marketing, but we feel like we have to do it because everyone says that you have to do everything. But the reason people say you have to do everything is because no one assesses what works and then quits doing the stuff that doesn't work. They just keep adding things onto their plate. <laughs> that's not a way. That's that's a way to what we call burnout. <laughs> Please don't do that. Right. And it seems like if you um, get a traditional publisher or if you're just looking for advice, the first thing you get is like, here's the list. You need to post on Facebook three times a week. You need to start, I guess it's TikTok now is the thing. You know, yep. you got to be on all these places, do a blog post, do a newsletter. You're like, but how am I going to write the next book? Yeah, you're not. I mean, right. That's the answer. Like, and that's why I think so many authors, like there actually are, are people now who are saying like, spend more time writing earlier in your career, which I'm really glad to hear about and less time marketing until you know, for sure what sells. And again, this is kind of the gamification mentality. It's like, have more freedom with yourself and your platform, like don't take it so seriously that you don't allow yourself to fail or change or pivot like that. To me, that's the biggest mindset thing that I see with authors who are super successful is they're, they allow themselves to fail. I've definitely tried a lot of the social media things over the year. And, um, one of the things I like about Amazon having its affiliate program is that it gives you a way to get a link and you can use them on all your platforms. They are against the newsletter, I believe. So you kind of, to be legit or legal with them, have to like siphon it through your website, but it allows you to see like once you've actually gained some traction, which ones are actually converting to sales. And for me, yeah. I found that the Facebook author page was my number two after my newsletter. So that's one of the reasons that's kind of the one I've maintained. And I do actually try to post three or four times a week, but the other ones, I mean, Google plus just disappeared after a few years. So there was no point in doing that one. Um, but yeah, by measuring it, it it's measuring. definitely let you know, which is worth maybe, maybe even if it's not your favorite thing, maybe it's worth it because all your people are there. Yeah. All right. I'll pass it to Joe for the next question. Um, so similar to my last question, like, do you feel like any strength that helps us become better writers can also be applied to marketing or are there top tier, uh, marketing strengths? So there definitely are some strengths that make marketing a little bit easier just because there are, um, like the, the relator that I was talking about before, where you'd like to have the closed gates, they also create sort of an intimacy with their communities that make their readers feel like they're friends um, on some level, even if they're not to the writer, <laughs> like the writer may not think of them that way, but the readers feel that way. Um, and that tends to create really close knit, intimate, um, dedicated fans. And so I do think that that particular strength has a real benefit when it comes to community creation. I think connectedness and empathy are both like that as well. Those are relationship building strengths. Um, and then of course, if you have the strengths like achiever, discipline, focus, which are exactly what they sound like, right? 
Um, it's so much easier to get marketing tasks done when you're wired that way, like where you really get a lot of energy out of repetitive tasks. And so if you have the capacity to do that, because so much of marketing, if you're going to do like everything where you're doing all the things in marketing, so much of it is just repetitive tasks and it's create the content, create the content, engage with the content, make an ad, make a better ad, you know, like that kind of thing. So if you have the capacity to internally motivate yourself to get those tasks done, it can absolutely be easier. Does it mean that you're not going to be successful if you can't do that though? No, I just think that there are, if, if that's the tactic you're going to take, there definitely are ways that are easier to be wired. Um, talking about all of this stuff, like it, I'm an extrovert. And whenever I take that, the, you know, the young, youngian, young, whatever, how you say that young end, I always am like really far read into the, you know, the extra extrovert thing. And so I always thought it was like some sort of a contradiction because unless I, I know somebody's really competent, what they do, I don't want to work with other people. I don't want to be in groups with them. I prefer to do things solo, which I'm like, how is that possible when I'm an extrovert? I'm like, leave me alone. I don't want to interact with anybody. I just want to go at my own thing. But um, I've also learned that one of my top strengths, none of my top strengths, except one have anything to do with relationships. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I just don't feel relationships. I'm like, I have no empathy, <laughs> which is really <laughs> horrible, which is also really good because I can get on Facebook and I can read other people having struggles and it doesn't phase me. I'm just like, oh, that's really horrible, but I don't take it on emotionally. So, yeah. but I'm listening to you has really helped me understand that about myself. I'm not a snob. I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I just, I prefer to be on my own and working. And then that way, I don't know. I think it has to do with like focus and everything. I just can zone in and I don't have to think about, you know, group activities, things like that. <laughs> well, and when you're, when you're with people, you're focused on the people, right? Like when you're here yeah. in the mm-hmm. podcast, you're focused on all the people who are here and then all the people who are listening, like you're, yeah. that's your extroversion. But when you're working, that's different. And I do think that, so the, the piece about strengths that I love that bothers me about other tests is the level of nuance that's there. So I can be extroverted and also not like people. I can be introverted and also be extremely friendly and outgoing. And, and the, the linear continuum tests um, don't have that level of nuance that allow you to be both of those things at the same time, which is why I like strengths so much. I can be two completely opposite things at the same time. Like I can literally be high adaptability and high achiever. And those two things could not possibly be more opposite, but it's possible to have both of those conflicting um, talents at the same time. And then you fight a little bit internally, right? Like you have that fight of like, oh, I want to go with the flow, but I want to get all the things done, but I want to go with the flow, but I want to get all the things done. And everyone can resonate, I think, with that internal discontent of like parts of us that don't seem to be aligned together. Uh, And that's what I like, I think, about strengths is you don't have to be predictably the same. You know, we're not stock characters, we're humans. My internet glitched on that and made it sound like you were crying. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was like, like, oh, Becca, you feel so strongly about this. I do. Nobody's going to get it because it was just my, on my side. So strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I mean, 
I, I do have woo, you know, woo does make me, I want to go and meet people, but then when I'm done meeting them, I'm like, okay, you're, you're on your own now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I doing my done. own thing over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is kind of sad, but, um, okay. So one of my, uh, you, like I said, in the past, I, I listened to your episodes from the beginning and you talked a lot about burnout and versus being blocked. And we just did an episode that was basically that topic. Um, so what is the difference in, in Becca language between being blocked and being burned out? So blocked is pretty fixable. I mean, like short, like it's pretty easy to fix being blocked. Um, and we talk about blocked and sort on sort of four levels. And some of them are really beneficial. Like if you're fallow blocked because you just need the time to sit and think, then that, if you do the fallow time, it will go away. Um, and if you're plot blocked, right. And all you need is to figure out what's happening next, there are ways to solve that. So I feel like block or writer's block or being stuck. It's like, it's fixable by doing a pretty consistently short-term amount of stuff, like three steps, maybe right. Burnout is systemic. Like it's something that is not quickly solvable, Um, it definitely takes a lot more time to recover from, like it's unusual for burnout recovery to take less than a month. And I would say a month is on the short side, like depending on how long it took you to get in there. Most of the time, what we see with block is it doesn't take anywhere near that amount of time, unless the resistance has gained its own momentum. And then you just keep not going back to the book, but you could, right? So that's solvable though. You just haven't solved it, but burnout is definitely more systemic. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and how would, um, you know, I I've heard you say before that a lot of authors have like achiever. Um, most authors don't have communication and woo. A lot of authors have input, stuff like that. How would those top personalities overcome burnout? So I feel like the, what fills me up like what I like to do and what fills me up is so consistent um, with what has always been that way, right? Like what over time, if I'm a person who needs and likes people, then as a communication woo, so often my burnout recovery needs to include communicating and wooing people, right? Like it needs to include those things that make energy pennies for me because I need to be able to spend those pennies on doing something at some point. And so an input, person or like an intellection person who might need more quiet time and need to read more. And you can be both of those things, right? But like in general, um, if you're not getting the time to input, you will eventually burn out if you're high input, because you just won't be getting the food that you need in order to survive. You're not filling the the well, the creative well. Um, And so the, what do I need is very often the thing that I have been denying myself or that I have been denied or that has been taken away from me, um, in order to, in order to get out of the burnout pit. Now, uh, obviously writing doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like we tend to, as writers, you know, if we're having a problem with, with our writing career or the process of writing, we, we look at it from the point of view of there must be something within the process that I'm having trouble with, but a lot can happen in a person's life that can contribute to burnout. Uh, do you have any advice on how one might track down the root cause of burnout? Yeah. So almost always the thing that you would say, well, it can't possibly be this 
like literally so people will say like, well, I hate my job, but, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, let's talk about that because almost always it's the, whatever happens before the, but, so we call it before the budding, right? So we'll say, well, I hate my job, but there's clearly something wrong with this book. And I'll be like, there probably isn't, it probably is the job. You probably need a new job. And not, not that I'm saying it's always that easy to fix, but for instance, what we heard so often in June of 2020 was, well, I haven't read, I haven't written since March, but it can't be, I mean, but it, but it's not the pandemic, right? But isn't it? I mean, why wouldn't it be the pandemic? Why wouldn't it be that your kids are suddenly at home? Like why, why would you assume that it's not that thing? And I think it's partly because we don't want to admit the unfixable stuff. Sometimes like we want it to be about the book because the book I can fix. And maybe the job I can't fix, or maybe the family situation I can't fix, or my divorce I can't fix, or whatever. Um, And so we want it to not be that big environmental systemic thing, but it often is that thing. Um, And the other piece too is often, if I've always needed something like reading, for instance, and I used to read all the time, and then I quit my day job to be a full-time writer, and now I have to write all the time, so I haven't read a book in two years, that's why you're burned out because you haven't read a book in two years and you used to read all the time. You've literally used up all of the creativity that you were storing and never filled it back up. And now you are burned out. So like when I had it, this happened the very first time I had a client and I told her, she's like, well, what do I need to do? What do I need to do, Becca? And I'm like, you need to read. She's like, nope, I cannot do that. I have to write. And I was like, right, but you're not going to be able to write until you read. And so she finally agreed to do it. And at the end of the first month, she sent me an email and she's like, can I stop reading now? And I'm like, can you write? And she's like, no. And I was like, well, then keep reading. So she kept reading. And a month after that, so two months after we had the first conversation, the words just started to flow out. And when she sent me that email, she was like, I did not believe you when you said that this would happen. And then it did. And I kind of hate you a little bit. And I was like, I'm okay with that because you're writing again. And now she's constantly like, I will never do that again. And she reads intentionally now as part of her work, which I think is important. So many of us need to do that. And we don't because we think we need to keep up with all of this other stuff. But as many of you have pointed out, but if you can't write the books, And if reading feeds writing the books, then you can't market a book that you haven't written, then you need to read. Like that's just, it needs to happen. It's kind of funny too. I don't know if this happens to everybody, but you'll start reading something else and all of a sudden you'll start having ideas for your own stories. Like, especially if it's something kind of boring, maybe not saying to pick up boring books, but you're like not as engaged as like, if something's really good and just sucks you in, you're like not thinking about anything else. It's eh, now those ones that your mind wanders a bit. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. (laughs) Or like, I would do it this way. Like that. I'm a big fan of like the, I would do it differently thing. So when I read, I'm often like, Hmm. Let me do that different. <laughs> That's true. It's arrogant, but true. <laughs> yeah. Although sometimes you just end up wanting to write like fan fiction like you did yeah. early on in your career because you just want to like use that world and yeah. spend time in it. All right. So our last couple of questions, we uh, were surfing around, checking out your books. 
And I love the title of um, Dear Writer, You're Doing It Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to quote the blurb was so great. Um, This is just a part of it, but it was, uh, it's not happening the way you thought, and you're not quite sure why. You're pretty sure there's something wrong with you, or you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. You might have tried some of the things everyone says to try, and it's just not happening the way they promised it would. I was just wondering if you could talk to that a bit, because I feel like that's going to be true for a lot of our listeners that are like, why is everybody else having this great success? And I'm not where I want to be. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad that you asked it that way, because like my answer to that question is so often because you are exactly where you should be, right? Like that you're, you think that you're doing something wrong because you're not having the success that you want to have yet, but really you're just at a different point in the timeline, almost like you are, you have jumped ahead in your mind to farther down the timeline than is realistic for you to be in. And you want to have something that you can't have, which doesn't mean that it's not, you don't still want it, but it's like, but let's look at the reality, right? So one thing we hear a lot is why am I not farther along in my career than for instance, some of my friends who took off. And then we'll start answering that question and they'll say things like, well, I I mean, I know they don't have kids anymore in the house and I do. And I'm like, well, there you go. There's the reason. Like, not that you should get rid of your kids. They're wonderful, I'm sure. But that that is a reason why you would be farther behind than people who are childless or whose child, you know, who are empty nesters. Um, And so when we look at like, what is it that we're really doing wrong so often we want to either look for the thing that we can blame ourselves for so that we can fix that thing, or we want to assume that it shouldn't matter at all when someone started publishing. It shouldn't matter. I should still be able to have the same amount of success as somebody who started publishing in 2012 and took off and is still doing great 10 years later. Like I should still be able to have that same amount of success. It shouldn't matter to me that I only have one hour a day to write. I should still be able to write 12 books a year, but should you like those types of questions? So a lot of the, when I think I'm doing it wrong is because we don't take into account all of the variables of a particular situation. And so part of what is in that book is, are you really doing it wrong Or do you just have expectations that are not enmeshed with reality? Right. And that, and it sounds a little harsh to say it that way, but like so often that is what we expect that it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Right. Yeah. That's painful, but also it does matter. (laughs) It matters. Yeah. It's, it's like you were saying before with like the, before the, but like there was a, there's a comic uh, who said that he had a tattoo on his arm that said, you know, because anytime anybody asks, has a problem, they sort of know, they know, like the only reason is, well, they, they're not solving it because either they know that the solution is more difficult or, you know, uh, so it, it's just yes. funny how often like the information, you will provide the answer to your question in the way that you ask the question. Mm-hmm. But yep. um, so uh, you've got a book, dear writer you're doing it right and aside from that being precisely the sort of thing a lot of us would love to hear but we fear we shouldn't be hearing uh it sort of reminds me of of a a jean-luc picard quote 
which is it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. Uh, is there a way to know when the things that are going wrong are out of your control? And how do you deal with the situation when that's the case? So, um, yes, there is. Um, it's often a long process of testing. And so I usually encourage people to do, to release themselves from the expectation that you need to figure it out right now. Like that's the first thing is that, so let's say you release a book in October and it didn't go well. Is it my fault that it didn't go well because the book wasn't written well? Is it my fault that the marketing wasn't done correctly, et cetera, et cetera. Like in order to test all of those variables, you would have to run tests on them. So you would have to change the cover and see if that makes a difference. You would have to um, experiment with blurbs, maybe run ads in a way that you didn't run ads before. So are there potentially things that you could do differently? Absolutely. But most of the time, the reason that things don't go the way we want them to is literally for reasons out of our control, like way too often, especially those of us who are very conscientious about trying to do things right. Most of the time it is, and I love that you use that quote because essentially it's, it's our question, the premise it's, I should have sold better than I did, but should you? Like the question really becomes, is there actually anything you could have done? Because in that moment, you wrote the book the way you wrote it. You made the decisions the way you made them. There is, I always quote the Morpheus quote, right? Like what happened happened and couldn't have happened in any other way. Like, so either you have to change it next time, or you're going to lose a whole bunch of time trying to figure out what exactly you did wrong because it's such a multivariable equation and there definitely are experts out there. And I think like people, people like the six figure author podcast are a great example. There are experts out there who can objectively look at what you're doing because they've had a lot of experience releasing books and they can try to help you come up with formulations about what might've happened. Definitely. But ultimately the only way you're going to know for sure is if you iterate. And I think that's the big deal is that so often, I mean, if you just think about the statistics alone of how many books in the Kindle store don't sell, like more than 95% of the books in the Kindle store do not sell more than a copy a day. So that means that very few people are making a lot of money off of being an author. That means that if I'm not selling, I'm actually in the majority and not in the minority. And I don't think that we take that as seriously as we should, because we're constantly looking to blame ourselves for something or the fact that I didn't release this trend when I should have, or I missed this boat, or I didn't make the gold rush or whatever. When in reality, it's factors out of our control. What happened happened and couldn't have happened in any other way, but I can do it differently next time. So how can I do it differently next time? And I know I keep coming back to gamification, but I feel like that's part of the, you're doing it right mentality is like, let's not get caught up in guilt, shame, spirals, like trying too hard to figure out all the things that you're doing wrong. And instead focusing on the places where we know you're doing what you should be doing and doing that better and doing more of that. Ultimately, that's kind of the better, faster concept, but, um, but yes, I do. I do think that most of the time it's factors out of our control and that doesn't feel good 
to say out loud. And it doesn't feel good for most of us who really care about quality and doing things correctly and, and doing things right. But it is so often the case, both for success and for failure. See, and, and I've always said, like, I've always said that, you know, before I had kids, I was, I, I wasn't as productive and having kids made me more productive and just, I've, I've recognized over the last few weeks, that that's not how it actually went. Um, like, cause looking back, I, I know my personality, I'm achiever, I'm activator, I'm focused. I wasn't lazy before I had kids and I didn't waste my time and didn't write. I was learning how to write mm-hmm. and I was learning how to market. And I didn't grow up wanting to be an author. I didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. I didn't start writing fiction until I was like 25 years old. And so when I look back over the past 10 years, I spent a lot of that time learning how to deliver craft that readers wanted to read. And most everything I've written has not been something that took off. And I, I knew, I mean, I, I have a business mind. I knew that a lot of the stuff I was writing wasn't going to take off, but I also recognize now that that stuff helped me learn how to be a better writer. And now, now that I know I can pull off a book that, you know, like, you know, my last series aside, there's a whole lot that went wrong with that, but like my romance books, and I, I know that they're potentially going to do really well because of how people have already been receiving them. Now that I finally can do it, it's really frustrating because I'm like, I've got kids and I absolutely hate using my kids as an excuse because I feel like it's a cop-out, but it's not a cop-out because they're so dang time-consuming. Yeah. So I'm like, and so cute. <laughs> like, they are, my, my, yeah. mine in particular. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, it's, and I try not to feel guilty for saying, I'm not as productive as I could be because I have kids when a lot of the people I'm comparing myself to, sorry, Lindsay <laughs> don't have kids. I mean, and Lindsay's openly admitted it, you know, and I, like my friends who have their empty nesters, they've openly admitted it. If they'd been in my position, they wouldn't have been able to be as productive as I have, which I feel like that's a blessing for me, but it doesn't relieve that stress and that frustration that I'm like, if I hadn't chosen to be a mom, which I don't regret, I would be so much more successful than I am. And, and that guilt, you know, that I, I feel like it's a cop out saying that it's my kid's fault. And I think part of it is my personality. I'm like that go, go, go person and having something external to me, holding me back makes me feel like I'm not go, go, going. And it makes me feel guilty for not go, go, going. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I want to acknowledge how frustrating that is. Cause I know a lot of people listening to this are in the same place. And I would say, um, I would say it a little bit differently, right? I would say for someone who has children that take up a lot of time, you are freaking killing it. Like, and so instead of thinking like I have this liability to my achiever, which is how focus feels, right? It's the, I want to put the blinders on and just go, go, go. But for someone who has to focus that hard in on what you do, like you give your all and your all and your all and your all, right? Like you're constantly shifting back and forth. So what you're doing for, and and this is again, part of why I think it's so important the way we talk to ourselves about what's going on. It's like, I I want to acknowledge the pain, right? And like having limitations and also say, sometimes those limitations are exactly what will make you be as successful as you could be. Like, it's very possible to be able to utilize your time better and make more better decisions than I would. I don't have children um, because you have to, 
and I don't, right? Like, so that's a, that's a huge difference, I think, in hopefully alleviating some of the pressure on like that you should, for some reason, be like someone else. And to be fair, like your personality is also very much, what is the rule? Like, show me the rule and then I will follow the rule. Right. And so you, you just have to assimilate the rules for you instead of the rules for someone who is, you know, empty nested, for instance. Yeah. And that's a problem because there's no rule when it comes to writing, you know, there's like, I'm like, I'm very, and that's true. That's weird that you picked up on that because I've never told you not even in our coaching session that I am very rule driven. I'm like, what I'm, I'm just obedient to a fault. Like, like, tell me what I'm supposed to do and I will do it so well. You will be surprised. Yes. That's not the way it is with author being an author. There's so many different roads to success. Yeah. Can I add just to finish up on this thought that I think it's important for people to realize when they're not achieving everything they want to, is that the really successful people you see, you know, the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, those guys, they're super driven, super obsessed. They do not have work-life balance. They have multiple divorces, probably estranged from their kids. So you have to, that's something that people choose, like, or they're just driven and that's the way their personality is and they're built. So wanting that, but not being able to give up everything that creates some friction, but Mm -hmm. Those people who don't give up everything will probably have happier lives. They have their kids they spend time with, lots of friends they do stuff with on the weekends, you know. So it's it's like there's positives to both ways of looking at things. And oh yeah, you know, Andrew, hopefully your kids <laughs> give you a lot of happiness and your family and everything. And two, <laughs> you know, it's not all about the books. Hopefully, no, my kids they definitely bring me happiness. Like I keep my phone with me for one reason when I'm around my kids to write down the funny things they say. And gosh, darn it. They are so funny. Like kids are, kids are great. They, they always catch me off guard. You know, they're, they're fun. And, and I understand, like, I recognize that in future years that they'll be, they'll bring more blessings. And right now the blessings they bring me are like warm fuzzies that I have such, (laughs) sorry, that my two-year-old is so funny. He does the funniest things, but he's so hard. But later on, like I'll be able to have companionship with them, you know? And like my... (laughs) my oldest is now nine and talking to her is starting to become more rewarding, <laughs> which is kind of sad to say, but it's true. They're, they're not as rewarding when they're little. <laughs> yeah. That's because you already know everything they know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're like, there's no value add from this conversation <laughs> yet. <laughs> yes. That's a really great point. Um, sorry. I'm going to cough here. Um, okay. So <clears throat> sorry, Becca, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Like, this has been absolutely phenomenal. This is an episode I'm going to have to listen to over again, because I was like, oh, I missed that while I was thinking about her previous thing. So, so I'm going to be listening to this one um, after we've uh, had it go live. But anyway, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, could you tell people where to find you, like your, your cozy mysteries, um, your courses, your nonfiction books, all of that? Yeah, the um, the easiest place is to go to the YouTube channel and listen to the quit Q-U-I-T-C-A-S-T. And no, I'm not trying to convince writers to quit, just to quit other stuff, <laughs> like to quit things that are holding them back. Um, but the quit cast on YouTube is the easiest place. And that has links to like all the, all the nonfiction or the nonfiction books and stuff. The cozy mysteries <laughs> um, are written under R.L. Syme, which funny story. I was at a book signing once and somebody came up to me and asked me if I wrote goosebumps, which I absolutely said that I did. And then was like, 
totally caught uh, because I was like, yes, I'll sign your Goosebumps book. And then they were like, yeah, never mind. Um, Stein and Syme are not the same. And my real name is Syme and Rebecca Lynn. So yeah, um, R.L. Syme are the cozy mysteries. And there is, I think, one series out under that name. Uh, and then everything else is either under a pen name or I took it down. I'm one of those writers, right? Who like, if I'm not writing in that genre anymore, I take all the books down. Cause I'm like, I don't want a fan base that I'm not going to manage. Um, but the cozy mysteries are still up. That's kind of funny. Cause I've, I'm, I would be taking so many books down if I did that with my fantasy. <laughs> like, I would, I'd be, I'd feel, I'd feel naked. <laughs> oh yeah. I do sometimes. <laughs> anyway. All right. Lindsay, Joe, do either of you have any further questions? Any further questions from the two of you, from the audience? Nope. <laughs> nope. It was great having you on the show, Becca. Thanks yeah, for joining thank us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again, Becca, for joining us. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And I am totally done talking now. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye, everyone. So long, everybody.